you can turn to uh, page 812 in the Pew Bibles, Matthew 7, starting in verse 24, uh, is where we'll finish up the Sermon on the Mount today. <clears throat> As you're turning there, it's finals time, right? Um, so I've been uh, interacting with a couple different folks <clears throat> in my own household and outside of it. Uh, exams are coming. I remember finals time in the dorms at A&M. Maybe you remember them in high school or college. <clears throat> Things you've learned, you know, three, four months ago, suddenly you're being asked to recall again as if they just taught it last week. Really, can you be expected to do that? <clears throat> um, and I, <clears throat> I remember the transition when it, it dawned on me, it's, uh, it's not till after college, uh, what it meant to really need to learn something. And it was, it was my first friendship with a, a guy who was in medical school. And watching his study habits and trying to watch him as he studied to be a doctor and trained to be a doctor and realizing that like he was memorizing all, all these things. I mean, all these body processes, drug interactions, all this kind of stuff. Um, not so he could pass a test, but so he didn't kill somebody. Right? So when people came into his office and he had to consult and make decisions about their health, that he would like know. So he prepared differently than I prepared for exams, like in English, right? Because <laughs> the, the, the knowledge he was gaining was going to have real-world consequences. There were going to be moments of judgment when his skill or lack of it would be evident. Now, the same kind of thing in engineering classes. Scary stories about engineers who took shortcuts and killed thousands of people. So pay attention, students. <laughs> you know? <clears throat> Maybe something like that in your life. Even listening to Emily Moore talk about her latest degree, that same kind of weight, right? Like, I've got to make decisions. And not that people are coming to condemn me, but just the way I live is going to bring out judgment. Do I know it or not? And when Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> that is the image that he has for us who would be his disciples. The work that you are doing will be tested. Judgment will come, and it will be exposed. And so he wants us, I would like us, to build your life like you know judgment's coming. Build your life like you know judgment is coming. And it's the main idea here in Matthew 7, 24 through 29. The final image, the closing words of the Sermon on the Mount. Build your life like you know judgment is coming. Uh, Matthew 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. <clears throat> when Jesus finished these sayings, Crowns were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. <clears throat> we started <clears throat> working through the Sermon on the Mount, which began back in Matthew chapter 5. He saw crowds, he went up on the mountain, he sat down, his disciples came to him and began to teach. And here we come to the concluding words, the, the final image, as he then descends from the mountain. We didn't read the descent part, that's in chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, having given this foundational teaching that will structure, you know, give light to everything that's coming in Jesus' life, as Matthew tells it. The image of two builders building on two kinds of foundations, two houses that weather judgment in two different ways. Urging us to build our lives 
like we know judgment's coming. Or to borrow, uh, riff a little bit on Mr. Samus's hymn, hear and obey, there's no other way to be happy forever. That's it. Hear and obey. Hear Jesus' words and do them. There's no other way to be happy forever, to endure through judgment, to build a life that will last, uh, through not the storms of this life, but of eternity. So we're going to unpack this and meditate on these verses together. <clears throat> we'll think about, firstly, the stable houses. How do we build stable houses? Uh, secondly, that last verse, as Jesus concludes the sermon, and we see them respond to his astonishing words. And then we'll wrap it up, try to kind of think about the big picture um, and an eternal home. Okay, step back. And in each step here, we'll kind of take one step back from the passage that we're looking at today, closing the sermon to kind of what's going on in the whole sermon, what we see about Jesus, and then how that fits into all that Matthew's done to set us up for how we live in light of eternity. So stable houses, astonishing words, and an eternal home. And we'll meditate through together today. So stable houses. Point one, <clears throat> command one, don't, I'm sorry, do. See, do, don't just hear. It's command one. Do, don't just hear. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. In verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. We contrast these two house builders. It's the final contrast in a whole series of pairs. If you were last week, we started the conclusion. It starts back in verse 13. There have been two gates. They were opened onto by two gates, two gates that lead to two different ways. Two kinds of prophets represented by two kinds of trees that bore two kinds of fruit, and now two kinds of builders building onto different kinds of foundations. And the house-building metaphor is just one more echo of the whole wisdom tradition that is in the background of this whole sermon. Psalms and Proverbs are especially full of this two ways to live kind of motif. We sang it in Psalm 1, right? There's Two ways to go. You can either walk and stand and sit in the way of sinners and scoffers, or you can meditate on the light and the law of the Lord. The wicked will blow away like chaff. The righteous will endure forever, because the Lord knows the righteous' way. That's Psalm 1. All of Proverbs is that way. There's two ways to live, two paths to take, two kinds of counsel to listen to, two ways to build. So the wise man builds a house that will uh, lead to blessing, and the foolish man builds a house that leads to a downfall. And that's what wisdom does. All through the Proverbs, all through the wisdom literature, wisdom builds houses. And folly destroys them. Proverbs 12, 7, the wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. So Jesus closes the sermon with this great wisdom teaching, right? Urging us to be wise men and women, not foolish ones. He is the great, capital S, sage. He is the wise man who can give wisdom, the perfectly older, perfectly wise older brother, Showing anyone who will listen after him and learn from him where eternal blessedness can be found. He's blazed the trail. He knows the way, and he calls us to go with it. And so they're building their houses, one wise and one foolish. And the difference is not how they build. There are other images that use that to, to teach a lesson. But Jesus' lesson here is not how they build, but what they build on. It's all about the foundation. Wisdom chooses a rock-solid foundation. Folly chooses sandy ground. And I haven't really thought about that before, but it just seems like an absurd decision to make. Who would build a house on the beach? On the beach? You've got it. You've, you've been to the beach. You can see that house, house, house on the beach. None of them have been there. They're right on the right on the sand. Right on the sand. You know, we know, we know, we know how, how to build houses in the sandy soil. We, we drive, drive, drive pilings all the way down the bedrock so they endure through all the storms and the rain. So you just kind of, I suspect the image is meant to be as strikingly stupid as it sounds. Like, who would do that? Why would you build your house on sand? And Jesus' point there is exactly 
Why would you hear what I say and not do it? They've both heard what Jesus teaches, but it's the doing or the not doing that separates the wise from the foolish. It's the implementation, the application. So three summary statements, I think in this, the whole Sermon on the Mount from 5 to 7, tie this sermon together and give us an idea about how to, how to go. You've been with us, you've been building this. This is the first time, this is sort of the summary statements. It started in 517. Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish but to fulfill them, right? That's his initial claim. I'm going to show you how to live and align with everything God has commanded from Genesis to Malachi. And then tells us three verses later that your righteousness, like if you're going to listen to obey the law and the prophets, your righteousness has to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. Unless, unless that happens, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's going to teach us how to live in the light of everything God has said so that we'll be more righteous than the righteous people, the religious scholars of his day. And what does that mean? Well, he, after six case studies built on the uh, Ten Commandments, he says in 548, you have to be perfect, complete, whole, just like your heavenly Father is perfect, complete, whole. Righteousness that is entire in your life. So, 7.12, what does that mean you do? He summarizes the whole, the whole command of the sermon in this, what we call the golden rule. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. Because that is the law and the prophets. How, do we, how does Jesus fulfill all the law and the prophets so that we can have a true, complete, perfect righteousness? It's by teaching us how to love others the way we want them to love us. To do for them what we wish they would do for us. And Jesus is saying that's the way of wisdom. If you'll be wise and build a life that will last, listen. Your guiding star must be imitation of God, perfection like he is perfect, which will always show up as loving others, treating them the way you wish they would treat you if you were in their situation. And all, all the details, right, we filled those out. Hang on that, those statements. And that's how our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes. Being wise is a more mature goal than being moral. Being wise is a more mature goal than being moral. It's not a different goal. It's not wise people aren't immoral. It's a good goal to have to want to obey all that Jesus and God has commanded. <clears throat> To keep all the rules. That's childish obedience that should grow into maturity. That's beginner obedience that should grow into maturity. It says, okay, having learned all the things that God commands, how do I apply those in all the ways God hasn't commanded? How do I treat people when there's not an explicit instruction for me? How do I represent God in the world and make decisions when I don't have exact Guidance. If you were here for our Proverbs series, that should sound very familiar. That's what wisdom means. We said that over and over as we went through the Proverbs. <clears throat> that the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was a rule-keeping righteousness. Keep God good, good commands and all these other extra commands to make sure we keep God's good commands and God will bless us. <clears throat> and the righteousness Jesus presses on us is, is the righteousness of wisdom. It's not different. It's just more mature. It's not just more rules or just different rules. It's learning all that God has commanded us so that we know who God is and so that we live lives from the inside out that love him 
and love our neighbors, <clears throat> keeping God's good commands because we're seeking to be good people. We don't want to just externally conform. The wise man, listening to Jesus, has this perfect righteousness, treats others the way he wants to be treated because inside and out, he is desiring, she is desiring to be good, like God is good. You remember that Matthew writes about this scene to show us Jesus is the true and better lawgiver. We started, right? He goes up on the mountain, he sits, the disciples gather, it's deliberately imitating the way Moses was on Sinai, giving the law from God to his people, except Jesus <clears throat> gives a deeper and richer instruction than the law. He meditates on the law to show how it applies to all of our behavior and all of our lives because the law can reflect those deeper realities, but the law can't, isn't enough to live the best life. The law is good, but it can't make you good. For that, you need to be wise. You need the law and the lessons it teaches to penetrate all the way down. The goodness of God has to go all the way to the depths of your soul. And so a life of obedience that hears and does it springs from a heart that's obedient. That sees that's, that's the good way to live my life. That's the foundation that will endure. Not just that's where I have to build my house. But that's where I want to build my house. Because if I build it there, it'll last forever. That's what the wise man or the wise woman who hears and does what Jesus says is like. Wisdom builds houses that Christians should care more about, uh, care about more than just getting into heaven. We are concerned about getting into heaven. We want to be in God's kingdom, but we should be concerned about more than that. We want God's name to be hallowed, to be known as holy. We want God's kingdom to come. We don't just want to get there. We want all the world to be covered with the glory of God. We want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's what it means to be a disciple more than having our debts canceled. We want to be entrusted with true riches so we can invest them for Jesus' sake. We don't want sins forgiven only. We want them gone. And we want sin more than gone. We want it replaced with goodness. This is the one who hears and does what Jesus says and sees the foundation on which to build a life. I don't just want to start over. I don't just want to get in. I want to be good. I want to be righteous. I want to be perfect like my heavenly Father is perfect. That's the cry of a disciple of Jesus, the one who sees and hears and responds in faith. Two gates that led to two ways, because living life can be pictured like walking a path day by day, step by step. Two trees we saw last week, because there were two different kinds of guides <clears throat> that can feed you good fruit, uh, that will nourish you and strengthen you on the way, or rotten fruit that will corrupt you and make you sick along the way. And now there's two houses, because the life we live can also be pictured as home, home building. We're looking to make a home in the world. Figure out how to build a life that lives here to the glory of God. Everybody's doing that, not to the glory of God. Not everybody's doing it to the glory of God. But everybody's trying to figure out how to build a life, organize their relationships, find a place to live, jobs and, and engagements, you know, things you're going to do. We're trying to sort of build a life that will be good for us, that will give us happiness and joy and, and satisfaction. Some of us do it well, some of us don't do it well, some of us try really hard and fail and it can be depressing. That's, but everybody's trying. And Jesus is urging you, the way to build that life so it will endure through all the storms isn't to make it up on your own, but to listen and apply. Not just assent, oh man, it'd be a really good idea if I loved my neighbor as myself, but then to actually start loving your neighbor as yourself. 
<clears throat> building a home in the world. Not because this is our final destination, not because this is our permanent home, but like the exiles in Babylon in Jeremiah 29, we read two weeks ago, I think, as a scripture reading. You can go read it again. <clears throat> because that's where we live. That's where God's put us. This is where God's put us. This is where he wants his glory displayed through us. One day Christ will come. Oh, come, Emmanuel, soon. <clears throat> and he will bring the kingdom in its fullness. Until that day, we're like the exiles in Babylon, living in a world that still rebels against God, building our homes in that place, <clears throat> learning how to glorify God and, and live our lives, and even when they hate us, the place they, they might be very opposed to us, but lives we know, though battered by rain and flood and wind, will survive and be a home of safety and refuge in the judgment. Or that's the judgment of the world or the judgment of God finally. And Jesus told us from the very beginning to expect those lives to be battered. It's not surprising that he would tell us how to found a house on a solid foundation because he's told the disciples from the beginning, if we're going to follow him, the world will be opposed to us. Satan will certainly hate us and oppose us. Many others in our lives may well at least suspect us, if not outright mistreat us. They will be battered. And so the wise hear and do, trust and obey. <clears throat> if you build on Christ. Now, why would you do that? <clears throat> we mentioned last week, why would you do what Jesus says? Sometimes it's obviously good. Sometimes it's very clear. Like, if I, you know, again, if we just imagine everybody loving their neighbor as themselves, a world like that, that would be a great place to live. But that's, it's really easy to imagine in the abstract, and it becomes a lot more difficult when it's your neighbor, who you can't stand, that you have to love. And then it becomes very difficult. <laughs> it becomes not so obviously good. Not such evident blessing. Sometimes it will be obvious how God's ways and Jesus' instructions uh, are good for us, sometimes not at all. It can be really hard sacrifices, really uncomfortable conversations, conversations that might blow up on you as easily as they might work out. Sometimes seeking God's righteousness more than food, remember? Seek kingdom first more than food or clothing. Sometimes doing that means you go hungry. <clears throat> sometimes turning the other cheek means painful persecution and maybe even death. It's not often, it's not always obvious that hearing and trusting Jesus is the wise way to go. And so Jesus wants us to have the perspective that there is more to this world than what you can see. The, the flood language is the, the language of judgment. It should remind us of the ark and Noah and the flood in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. And then God is bringing judgment. <clears throat> and if it seems to be difficult now to build a well-founded house instead of taking the easy route and plopping it down whatever sandy place you might happen to be standing, it will be worth it when judgment comes. Do you want security in the storms? Hear Jesus and then do what Jesus says. Because you trust him. You enter the gate <clears throat> by faith. That's what it means to enter the narrow gate. You walk the path by faith. You choose the foundation by faith, and then you build on it because you continue to trust the foundation. 
You'll obey Jesus in all the ways in your family and your vocation, your neighborhoods require. <clears throat> so, all of our lives perfectly submitted to Jesus. That's what I'll be asking in my life, very particularly. How do I build my life in a way that glorifies God? My life's not yours, is it? <clears throat> There's a lot of overlap because we all live in the same place. But, you know, I'm going to be figuring out how to be a husband to Emily. I'm not married to any of your wives. There'll be probably 85 to 90% overlap in what that means, but there's going to be some very specific things that I've got to figure out. Same thing with Emily. She's going to be figuring out what it means to be a wife to me. I'm going to figure out what it means to be a father to my kids, not yours, and you're going to figure out your kids, not mine. A lot of overlap, some unique things. We're going to be hearing and obeying. Be a member of this church or a deacon or a pastor to have the particular job you've got, to do the particular work you do, the particular family relationships you have, whether those are troubled or joyful, the particular sicknesses your body will get afflicted with that others won't. Every one of you is going to have to decide for yourselves, I'm building my house on the rock. <laughs> that's where I'm staying because that's what will survive the floods. Jesus will survive. A life built on him will survive. Trying to be perfect like my heavenly father is perfect will survive. Loving my neighbor as I love myself will survive. Will thrive. Will give us stability and security. So do, beloved. If it's, it's been a long time, we, we, we go through it slow. You might consider reading back through the whole thing this afternoon from chapters 5, 6, and 7. And just ask the Lord, which of these is the hardest? <laughs> Which of these is going to be the most difficult for you? All the application that Jesus gave, reconciling relationships, pursuing purity, keeping all of your promises, never saying anything you don't mean, loving your enemies, neighbor, neighbors, taking care of your own sins, you can help your own sins, you can help us. I mean, just read through and ask, which of those is going to be difficult? Pray for the grace to apply, to do. Do you see how it's going to all work out? Of course you don't. Do it anyway. Do you see how it's going to be wise for you to do what Jesus says? Maybe, but maybe not. Do it anyway, because you trust he is the wise master builder. He is the son of God whose words can be utterly trusted. Obey, do, act. Don't wait till you've got it all figured out. Don't wait till you think you need more faith. Don't wait until you know how the, you've, got, you've got game planned all the contingencies. If you see something Jesus is calling you to do, beloved, act. Do. Don't just hear. That's a life that is founded to last. When Jesus delivered that message, then, and finished all of that teaching, told them they have to be perfect like God is perfect, that fulfills all the law and the prophets, which means loving others as you love yourself, so build your life on this. In verse 28, he is finished, and the crowds are astonished. So point two is these astonishing words. Uh, and here's the second instruction, right? First instruction, do, don't just hear. Second instruction, fear Jesus, not just his words. Fear Jesus, not just his words. Uh, and I'm using fear in the way the Bible uses fear because it makes a nice summary. <laughs> You might expand that to be, be in awe of Jesus. Be amazed by Jesus. Adore Jesus. Not just what Jesus teaches. They were overwhelmed and amazed. They were astonished. 
They didn't have categories to process and assimilate everything they had just heard. It means uh, the, the word is a really strong word for like slack-jawed awe, amazement, uh, overwhelming, um, kind of, you know, just that sense of being paralyzed because you, you don't know how to process what you just heard or what you just saw. Uh, the word gets used for the miracles when Jesus walks on water or raises Lazarus from the dead. That's the kind of thing that would astonish, amaze, overwhelm you. Yeah. You know what's interesting in Matthew? I learned this this week, doing, preparing this teaching. Uh, Matthew never uses it for miracles. Matthew only ever uses it to talk about Jesus' words. In the Gospel of Matthew, people are consistently astonished at Jesus' words. Jesus speaks, and they're overwhelmed. I think what, what Matthew's saying is, what Jesus said is the most important thing about him. You know how to live and you know who he is more about by what he said than by anything he did. Everything he did is explained by what he said. And if you're not astonished, if you don't sit back and just have to take a minute, you're probably not understanding. And maybe, beloved, you've read the Sermon on the Mount enough or you've heard teaching enough that it's no longer astonishing. It was at once, but it's no longer astonishing to you. I hope in the next few minutes... That will be astonishing again. What did they hear on that mountainside that made their jaws drop and their voices stick? Well, a lot of things and a lot of hard teachings, right, about how to, how to love people. But they also heard what Matthew particularly tells us is about his authority, right? Why were they astonished? Because he taught like he had authority. So if you've got your Bibles open, flip back to Matthew 5. And Jesus starts with all these blessings. We call them the Beatitudes because they make us blessed. That's what a Beatitude is. And the very last one, right, he says, blessed are you, uh, top, topsy-turvy from the beginning, which would have been amazing by themselves, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the mournful, the meek, those who are hungry for righteousness and merciful. Um, the pure in heart, peacemakers who are persecuted. And then verse 11. He makes it very particular to them on that hillside. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Okay, let's just stop there. Okay, I just want you to imagine if I said that to you. If I stood here and said, you know what? People might hate you and revile you because you represent me. And that's going to be really good for you. I mean, that's what Jesus just said in very flowery, old-fashioned language, right? You're, you're going to represent me, and they're going to hate you, and that's going to be really good for you. And then he adds the comparison. How, how, will they, how will that persecution be like? He says, rejoice and be glad, verse five, chapter 5, verse 12, because your reward is great in heaven, because that's how they persecuted the prophets. You're going to go represent me, and they're going to persecute you. And you know why that's good for you? Because that's what the prophets, that's what happened to the prophets. Now, who did the prophets represent? Prophets went and were persecuted because they spoke for God. And, and Jesus just throws it out there with no comment. You go represent me, you're just like them. If, if I said that to you, you know, if you get persecuted because you are doing what I say to do, you're basically like an Old Testament prophet. What would, what would you think about me? <laughs> oh, it keeps going. <laughs> That's not the last one. Uh, in chapter 5, he starts with the meditating on the Ten Commandments. 
In chapter 5, verse 21, right, he starts with anger. You've heard it said you should not commit murder. It's one of the Ten Commandments. And he's going to expand on that teaching. And he says, you've heard it said, but here's what God meant. But that's not what he says, is it? He says, you've heard it said, but I'm telling you this. And he doesn't go quote more Bible. He just says, I'm telling you, this is what it means. This is how you, this is how you obey them. The Ten Commandments. He's just saying, I got, I got more teaching on that. Or look at 629. Here he just throws this out there. And that uh, passage on worry, which is somewhat popular, you might know, you know. He says, sorry about how you, you should consider the lilies of the field, how they don't grow, they don't toil or spin. Chapter 6, verse 29, he says, but I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory didn't look like one of those. Now, how did Jesus know that? He just throws it out there like everybody's going to take him at his word. Like, you know, you got white hair, but it's not nearly as white as Washington's wig. How would I know that? And he just throws out there like, I know what Solomon's robes look like. That field over there is prettier than anything Solomon ever put on. Just lets it go. Like everybody's going to be like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, Solomon's robes, sure. What, what is he saying about himself? What is he just like assuming that who he is? Or 721. We saw this last week. He gives, and this gives this warning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, if you don't call me Lord, if you're going to call me Lord, that doesn't guarantee you entrance to the kingdom. Again, if I said that to you, what would you think about me? And yet Jesus throws it out there. Like it's just the most natural assumption in the world. You're going to want to get into the kingdom and you're going to say, Lord, Lord, to me. Without any defense or explanation. And then he even goes further. At the end of that paragraph in 723, he's going to say, you know, they're, they're going to be, we did, we did mighty works in your name. And he's going to say, yes, but I'm going to tell them, depart, leave. Because, you know, he's got the authority to do that, to just tell you, nope, sorry, you don't get into heaven. Because I didn't know you. Like, the critical criteria for entering God's kingdom is knowing him. He just throws it out there. And we talked about it, and we read through it, because we're pretty used to it. But again, just imagine if I said any of those things to you. I mean, it's not that far off of the setting, Right? Up on a stage, people gathered around, we're doing some teaching. And if I said anything like Jesus said, you might fire me on the spot. I understand in the history of this church, that's happened once. Pastor got fired mid-sermon. I don't know why for him. I would hope you would at least, like, ask me, did you really mean what you just said? That, like, you're the sinner and the criteria by which everyone is judged? And I could explain to you, I didn't mean that. No, 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 I didn't say or if I said, yes, I, I did mean that. In fact, you would be right to fire me and not listen to me anymore. And yet Jesus just throws it out from start to finish as if everything hinges on him. So when they say he teaches with authority and not like their scribes, I'm not even sure Moses and the prophets taught like, talked like Jesus did. You know, when Moses says in Deuteronomy, I've, I've set before you today life and, and uh, blessing, death and cursing, he doesn't claim that he's got this great insight. He says, I'm just giving you the commandments the Lord gave me. 
Jesus doesn't even talk like that. He just talks like, I've got it. This is me. Listen and do. That, I, the, the echo in Matthew 7 in our passage today, hear and obey, is exactly what Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, 14. The word is very near you. It's in your mouth and your heart, so you can do it. You've heard it. Now you can do it. And Jesus says the same thing about his own words. It's just flat out astonishing to try to imagine being a disciple on that hillside and it start to dawn on you. What is he saying about himself? Uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way famously, right? You can call him a lord, a liar, or a lunatic. What you can't do is just say he's a good teacher, a reliable guide. I mean, he's either crazy, he's self-deluded, that's a lunatic, or, or he's a liar, he's intentionally deceiving you. Uh, some have added a, a, a third option, he's a legend, he didn't exist at all. But if he is what he said he is, if we take him seriously, like Matthew was an eyewitness, which he was, and all the Gospels were eyewitnesses, which they were, and that uh, Acts records the witness of those apostles, which it does, then the only option out there is to say that he is the king of the universe, that he is what we sang, God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, God with us. He's God, the Son incarnate. And it's, it's hard because we've never seen him, I think. It's just amazing, again, to try to imagine a man making those claims. But that's what he is, truly and fully human. Man, one of us, took on our flesh. So the words that came out of his mouth need to be treated like they are words that come straight from the mouth of God. So he knows how to build houses that endure for eternity because eternity is his. He's the reliable guide that can say, build your life on this rock, my teaching, and everything it says about all that God has commanded. Because all of eternity is mine. I'm going to rule it, which is, of course, what he does in Matthew 28 after rising from the dead. All authority in heaven and on earth has been, in fact, given to him, not just as God the Son, but as Jesus Christ, the crucified and exalted king of creation. And so according to his divinity and his humanity, he reigns. And so wisdom and folly are determined entirely by our reception for him and our readiness for him. Rather, we will listen and do and be ready for his return. So much of the sermon points ahead. I mean, it teaches us how to be disciples, but Matthew clearly structures this and tells us about Jesus' teaching to, to show us what's coming or to lay the groundwork for what's coming. And this idea of wisdom and folly comes back in Matthew at the end when Jesus is preparing for his, for his departure. And he says the kingdom of heaven will be like ten women who want to be part of a wedding procession. So they take their lamps, the groom's delayed, and the wise had extra oil for their lamps, which is the Holy Spirit. They've got the Spirit because they trust in Jesus. And the foolish weren't. So when the groom came at midnight, only the wise could enter. Only they had enough light for their lamps. The foolish heard the same thing that the lawless did. It was in verse 23. Sorry, chapter 7, verse 23. They try to get in. Lord, Lord, open to us. But he says, I, I don't know you. Because wisdom is seen in founding your life on him because you're ready for his return. You live like judgment's coming, like the one who gave this teaching is coming again one day. And whatever the storms of life may bring and whatever the testings in your day-to-day -day sufferings expose in your life, one day this king is coming back who died for you, rose from the grave, and has been given all authority. And the flood of God's judgment will come. And it will not be some distant God who will be our judge. It will be Jesus on his throne. That's Matthew 25. He is the one who sits on the throne 
and divides the righteous from the wicked, the wise from the foolish, the sheep from the goats. This one, who, who before coming in judgment, came in mercy to show us how we had to live and then to die for our sins when we fail so that we can repent and trust him and learn to build lives on him. Wisdom is seen in founding your life on him because he owns everything. He made everything. He reigns over everything. And he knows what it's like, what it's like to walk in our skin, in our flesh. So don't, don't just take his words and think, oh, that'd be a good way to live my life. Just take his words and be amazed at him. Be astonished. I just, this Christmas season, just work, pray, pray, ask the Lord to help you. Press through the busy parties and the gift giving and buying and all those things to really, again, just this year, as we say last year, to see. Help us be amazed. To give us, finally, an eternal home. So third point, an eternal home. It's not a command. It's a reminder that we're in this together. <clears throat> so now we're zooming. We're going to zoom all the way out. As Jesus has closed the Sermon on the Mount, he summarized this thing and said, build your life like this. If we stopped right there, it would be very tempting to think he's giving a bunch of individuals a bunch of individual assignments. Uh, because that's how West Texans build homes. That's how we build homes, right? I build a home so I can get away from the world. <laughs> You find property, you want a place of your own, so you can do what you want with it, so you don't have to be beholden to anybody else, no landlord telling you what to do, you know. You build a home so you get away from people. That's what Americans do. That's not the ancient picture, and it's certainly not what Jesus means. So, just like the Old Testament points to Jesus, everything in the sermon points ahead to the rest of Matthew. It's the groundwork for what's coming in Matthew. Um, as a part of how God is working his global plan to sum everything up in Jesus. So, again, back to chapter 5, Matthew 5, 13, he, Jesus had used that illustration. You're the salt of the earth. Salt has lost its taste. Its saltiness can't be restored. It's got to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And we said, when we looked at that, salt is really a sign of the covenant. I mean, of all the things salt does, it's used in the Old Testament mostly as a sign of the covenant, the permanence of the promises that God makes. That, that Israel was the salt in the world. They were supposed to be the presence of God, the temple and the worship that the, the nations would learn from and the glory of God would expand. But of course, uh, they had once gone into exile because they had lost their saltiness. He brought them back. They're no saltier than him. And so he's going to make a new covenant, the covenant in his blood that we'll celebrate with the supper. But from his first sermon in, um, yeah, in Matthew, he, he's sowing these seeds that the Gentiles would be brought in and added to the people of God. That the book would end by sending this gospel message to all the world. So the salt of the covenant, the covenant of the new covenant, would, would permeate everywhere. The salt, he said, you're light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. Which is a teaching for us individually as disciples. But also, do you, do you know where there was a house filled with light built on a hill? And that's the temple. That's exactly what the temple is. The city on the hill, maybe Jerusalem, where they went up to for all their festivals. And the temple set on a temple mount there had the menorah, the light stands that were perpetually kept burning. In, in a sense, I mean, God's hospitality never, never, never closed. His light was always on. His people were always welcome. That's, that's the temple, a, a house filled with light set in a city on a hill. At the end of the sermon, 
After Jesus says, how are you supposed to live as this temple people, this people built together to display God's glory? He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Those are regular images for the nation of Israel. The prophets are always saying things like, I came to my vineyard and looked for grapes, and there were no grapes. I came to my fig tree, there were no figs. They're not bearing fruit. They're actually thorn bushes and thistles. So by the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the religious leadership, the scribes and the Pharisees, will have rejected him entirely. And so he repeats, Jesus does in Matthew 7, 19, the same warning John had given the Pharisees, that the axe is laid to the tree. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit gets cut down and thrown into the fire. It's not just individual disciples. He's, he's working with a global people. And if he's the wisest man that ever lived, do you know what Jesus builds his house on? So this is fascinating. What's the rock? There's only... It's not another rock until Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. When Jesus came into the district, this is Matthew 16, the Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who did the people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets, right? The Lord liar lunatic thing, like you're a good teacher, you're a prophet, you're kind of this thing. But he said to them, what do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And Jesus is building a house. On the rock of his death and resurrection as the Christ, the Son of the living God. So whether the storm of eternal security, of eternal judgment with security to be built into his house. Part of his people. So we're building on the rock, but we're not building alone. God has always been working to bring people into relationship to himself as a people. What about Israel's house? That house built on a hill filled with light meant to be a testimony to the world of the glory of God? Matthew 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house, your house is left to you desolate. It will fall in 70 AD and great will be the fall of it. Because they rejected Jesus. When he left the temple going away there in Matthew 23 and 24, the disciples are marveling at the building. Look at this great house. You see all these stones, do you not? Truly I say there won't be one upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is saving and securing people to be a people. A family. His people in the world. Our discipleship is inescapably personal. We are all making this decision where we're going to found our life, what kind of life we're going to build. It is inescapably personal. No one can obey for you. No one can call the narrow path uh, good for you. I can tell you that it is. No one can make you walk it. No one can build on the rock for you. So your discipleship is very personal, but it is never private. You build houses to make community. You build houses in the ancient world for hospitality. It's not a way to get away from people. It's a way to be in a neighborhood, in a community. So house building is a picture to show you live a secure life. And that life is doing what Jesus teaches. And so that righteousness is inescapably 
relational. Again, if you just want to read back through the Sermon on the Mount this afternoon, just pay attention to the fact that everything Jesus commands is about relationships. There's no sort of isolated righteousness for anybody in the Sermon on the Mount, whether it's how we treat each other in reconciliation and purity and honesty and love, whether it's how we treat the Lord by drawing near to him because we trust him and not to impress others, or how we treat the world with worry-free generosity instead of anxiety-ridden envy. Everything Jesus says is about how we are in relationships, about how we love people. There is no way to be righteous alone. Righteousness always shows up in community, in relationships, in how you treat people. So intensely personal, never private, knit together because the house Jesus is building is one of living stones, building together as we encourage and help each other to do this. So you, beloved, do, and don't just hear. Do, listen, and obey. But don't try to do that alone. Don't hide when you fail. Don't hold back your encouragement when you can help others. We must build our house on that rock. Be amazed at Jesus, not just his teaching, but at who he is. We worship together, and don't do it alone. We do it together, encourage each other, remind each other, draw and call each other back, and not least, gather at the king's invitation every Lord's Day to sing together, to hear each other's voices lifted to God, to hear prayers and to, on Sunday nights pray for each other, to study his word and open his word together so we can not just individually grow, but that we can grow together. We're in this together. We are building our house. And the Lord's Supper is a symbolic meal that Jesus gave us to remind us of these things. Because they remind us of him. Now, he didn't hear his father's will and not do it. He heard and obeyed. And it, it killed him. And he's been raised to glory. And that we, as we found our lives in the rock of Christ, we will be battered by the world. But we will survive judgment, even to death. Because as he was crucified and raised, we will die and rise. Let's celebrate the supper together to remind us to live like Jesus has come and he is coming. Let's pray. God, we ask that you will be with us as we turn from hearing your word to ingesting the word made flesh. A reminder, the word was made flesh. Draw near to us as we draw near to you. Be good to us and make us good. Conform us to the image of Christ that we would hear and do. I pray you do it in Jesus' name. Amen.